Welcome to the Delano Newsmakers podcast, bringing context to the stories that matter in Luxembourg. I'm Jess Baldry. As we face down a number of growing crises, today I speak to a person who is spreading a powerful message to communities. I don't think for me there was one particular light bulb moment. It's been more like a sequence uh, going back. And if I was to go back to the moment that would be the original one, actually for me, uh, it was punk. And particular records when I was about 12 or 13 or 14 that, that just profoundly changed my sense of what was possible and that that there was one record I remember which the sleeve on printed on the sleeve was everything you needed to know in order to be able to make your own record so it said where they recorded it how much that cost where they mastered the tapes where which record pressing plant they went to how much that cost how much the sleeves cost how much the labels cost how they distributed it and then it gave you everything you needed to know and said it's really not that hard we did it you can do it too and uh there was a thing as well at that time that showed you how to play three chords on a guitar. And it said, here are three chords, now form a band. And I think actually for me, that was the moment where I thought, okay, I don't need to be a passive observer here. I can be involved. I can make things happen. And that was, I think, the catalyst and the spark that has really sustained me forward through all of the activism that I've been involved in since. That was Rob Hopkins speaking to us from England before an event in Luxembourg in September. Rob co-founded the Transition Network, a movement that encourages communities to make change and transition to a more resilient, just and responsible society. Founded 15 years ago, this approach has spread to over 50 countries, including Luxembourg. So briefly, can you explain the concept behind transition and give some concrete examples of this in action? So for me, the transition movement is about looking with full openness and honesty at the future that lies ahead of us if we do nothing, which is pretty terrifying and catastrophic, and saying, what could we do with the people we have around us, with the resources we have around us, what could we do as the people who live in this place and who understand it better than anybody in government ever could. So for me, the transition movement is a movement of communities who are reimagining and rebuilding the world. They are motivated by the understanding of what's of what's coming at us down the down the tunnel, uh, but they are f- facing into that with creativity and possibility and a different narrative of of how the future could be a different narrative about how the economy could be Uh, so some examples i guess what we've seen in the transition movement over the last 13 or 14 years has been a real flowering i think of creativity and amazing projects which range on a huge uh, spectrum of scales so you have many communities who do small projects like a community garden or uh, or starting a repair cafe or starting a, a, a things like that, you know, that are small things that communities can do. Maybe they start planting trees around where they live or they create a new park or something like that. And then you have a spectrum all the way through to transition groups who have started community energy companies that have raised tens of millions of pounds of investment from local people up to uh, in Liège where they have this incredible project called Centure Alimentaire 
where they are basically reimagining the city's food system and have uh, started 25 new cooperatives and raised over 5 million euros of investment from local people to support that. And underneath all of those projects is a belief in a different kind of economy of the future and a belief that a low carbon future, if we do it right, could be so much better and so much more nourishing and delicious and equal and fair and delightful than the world that we're in today. But if we just sit around and wait for someone else's permission, it's not going to happen. So transition groups get started, they tell different stories and they put them into practice in the everyday world around them. I noticed that you've quit flying and that you favour video calls and you did that a long time before COVID happened. But I I wonder, doesn't a pandemic create new challenges? You know, things like social distancing, don't they undermine some of the pillars of the movement, you know, the community-centric approach? And, and what other challenges has COVID created for the movement? Yeah, I, I stopped flying in 2006. So, so this network we built in 50 countries hasn't been built by me flying around the world on airplanes. It's been largely actually built using... Uh, YouTube and Zoom and kind of online technologies to enable us to support groups in different parts of the world to to start their own projects. And one of the things that I do and that I'll be doing in the talk in Luxembourg uh, is that I always I always include in my talks an exercise where I invite people to close their eyes and imagine that they travel forward. 10 years in the future to a future that's not utopia it's not paradise, but it is a future that is the result of during those 10 years absolutely everything that could possibly have been done was done and I invite them to imagine it and then to go for a walk around in it what does it smell like sound like feel like and then I ask them for some reflections and the most common things that people say are the bird song is so much louder the air smells so much cleaner there are so many less cars there is food growing everywhere and there is a really strong sense of shared purpose. Now, until six months ago, people would then leave my talks and say, well, that was very nice. But hey, in the real world, the, you know, for, for the first two or three months of lockdown, we could step out of our house. And that was the world that was there. And the most important gift for me from Corona, in spite of all the suffering and the horrendous anxiety and stress and isolation it has brought was that for two or three months it gave us a taste and it's so important that when we when we imagine what happens next that we hold on to that and that we build on that and we see that as a foundation not that we just allow ourselves to slide back to how things were and completely forget those those extraordinary uh, few weeks where our streets were empty and we could hear the birds so Luxembourg, like a lot of countries, is facing a number of challenges, not, not only the pandemic, but a critical one here is the lack of affordable housing. So we have a few sustainable housing projects. There's the Earthship, for example, in Redange. But these, on their own, can't bring down the essential high price of land. Um, it's extremely expensive here, as it is the case in the UK, I believe. So what solutions has your movement found uh, examined that tackle this specific problem well i was thinking i think it's i mean we could talk about housing in a minute but i think it's really important not to look at housing in isolation from everything else you know often we say there is a housing crisis there is a mental health crisis there is a climate emergency there is a public health crisis as a biodiversity crisis it feels so important to me that we bring all those things together because the solution 
is going to be found not in leaving all those things off, off in little silos. Um, you know, if we tackle the climate emergency, it's fundamentally about uh, social justice, intergenerational justice, um, you know, that we know that in the world, 10% of, of the richest people on the planet are responsible for 50% of, of the carbon emissions. It's not like everybody on the earth is somehow equally responsible for this crisis. It's very concentrated. Uh, and, um, and, in a and in a country like Luxembourg, which is, has the second highest carbon footprint, ecological footprint of any country in the world, uh, it would take about eight planets to sustain Luxembourg, people to live a lifestyle like people live in Luxembourg, then bringing that back down requires looking at looking at homelessness and housing and land in a much wider holistic context that we need to be saying, well, you know, often there are people who have far too much housing, for example, and there are some people who have no housing. So for me, the, the solutions uh, are based on uh, you know, there are certain things communities can do, and we see communities, like I mentioned, like in in my town in Totnes, we have a project where we are building homes for people using local materials and trying to model a different kind of an approach. But I would say in a country where land is really, really expensive, then there are areas where we need government intervention and we need compulsory purchase of land. We need a government to say, this really matters. Uh, and we also need governments to look at the fact that often the existing housing stock, particularly the kind of housing stock that people on lower incomes uh, are forced to live in, is very energy inefficient, is often not very healthy uh, to live in. So we need, I think, to be looking at this really holistically and saying that any new housing as well that is built should be uh, affordable to live in. Uh, should be affordable to 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 inhabit and to and to heat, and uh, and I always love projects like the one that we're doing in my town, where we say we're going to build houses here, but we're going to the majority of the materials that we use are going to be locally sourced. In the same way that we use our mental, uh, we use the thinking around food. We understand the concept now around local food. If you buy local food, more money stays locally. You create more work locally. It has a better economic impact. We don't apply the same thing when we look at building homes. If we could build homes using local clay, local stone, locally grown hemp, local timber, we create so much more work. Uh, but I think if the problem is that land is unaffordable, then we need to be putting pressure on government to compulsory purchase land uh, and make it affordable for creating the kind of housing that actually is appropriate for the 21st century. The transition towns movement has been going now for 15 years. Haven't you ever felt like having a day off? And, and what is it that keeps you going? Uh, well, I think the first point to, 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 to say is that all of the things that you read about and all the stories that you read about that happen in the transition movement aren't all done by me. They're done by like by many, many thousands of people all around the world. And what keeps me going is that I go to visit places where this is happening and I get to meet extraordinary people who are creating phenomenal projects who, because they love it, because they love the place where they live, because they feel they kind of have no choice. It's like their life's work is to do that. I never met anyone who came up to me and said, you know, my life was going really well until I got involved in transition. Or, you know, until I learned to grow my own salad, everything was right. And then it all went completely downhill uh, from that moment. That never happens. And uh, I see again and again 
what incredible things communities are, are, are capable of. And I see how proud they are to show what they've created to somebody who they associate with that initial spark to create it. And uh, as much as anything, the transition movement, we always say to people, all the resources are free. You don't have to pay a membership. Just go and do it. Take this stuff, run with it. The only condition is that you share your stories. And so the transition network, the transition movement is really a network of, of story. And uh, my role is really being a kind of a cross pollinator of stories. I go to one place, I hear their story, I take it somewhere else, I get their story, I share those stories around. And that's what sustains me is, is, is those stories and that sense of, uh, of, of not buying the narrative, either that it's too late or either that we have no power or that the narrative that people are fundamentally selfish and nobody cares. I just don't buy that at all. And what sustains me is, is how extraordinary people are when they come together and are motivated to do something. Rob Hopkins, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. You can listen to all our podcasts on Delano.lu and on all podcast platforms. And subscribe to the Delano newsletter for all the latest Luxembourg news in English. Sign up on Delano.lu.